Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Thursday, July 13th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, the G7 vows long-term backing for Ukraine. So President Biden and other group of seven leaders on Wednesday pledged long-term support for Ukraine and announced that they would each negotiate a bilateral security deal with Kiev. So the G7 leaders said in a joint statement, quote, Today we are launching negotiations with Ukraine to formalize through bilateral security commitments and arrangements aligned with this multilateral framework in accordance with our respective legal and constitutional requirements, our enduring support to Ukraine, end quote. So the G7 said that each member will work with Ukraine on specific bilateral long-term security commitments and arrangements. So the G7 includes the U.S., Italy, Japan, which is not a NATO member, France, Germany, Britain, Canada, and the EU is also considered a member. The statement said that the bilateral security deals will include more military aid, training, intelligence sharing, cyber cooperation, and support for Ukraine's military industrial complex. President Biden recently floated the idea that the U.S. could support Ukraine the same way it does Israel, which would involve a long-term commitment to billions of dollars in military aid each year. So that might be the kind of deal we might see the U.S. sign. You know, over 10 years, we're going to provide you with X amount of military aid. Although at the same time, when Biden said that, he suggested that an arrangement like that will only could only happen after the war is over. And who knows when that's going to happen. So the G7 pledges fell far short of what Zelensky was hoping to get out of the two-day NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. NATO's communique issued on Tuesday offered no invitation for Ukraine to join the alliance or a clear timeline on when Kiev's membership could happen, which Zelensky blasted as absurd, as we covered yesterday. So on Wednesday, Zelensky said that the G7 commitments could not be a substitute for NATO membership. He said, quote, we can state that the results of this summit are good, but should we receive an invitation, that would be the optimum. The best guarantee for Ukraine is to be in NATO, end quote. The White House has said that Ukraine joining NATO would put the U.S. in a war with Russia, which could obviously quickly turn into a nuclear conflict. But despite recognizing that reality, you know, it's they're acknowledging how serious this is, you know, Ukraine joining NATO. But they're still committing, you know, basically open-ended support for Ukraine in a war against Russia, which just brings, you know, each step, each escalation of U.S. and NATO support for Ukraine brings the U.S. and Russia closer to a direct clash. Um, President Biden delivered a speech at the end of the summit in Lithuania. And the, the message, you know, what it sounded like to me was, you know, we're in this, you know, expect we don't expect this war to end anytime soon. You know, we're going to support Ukraine for as long as it takes, which is what he said. You know, our support will not waver. Lots of rhetoric like that. 
so yeah i mean just basically saying you know this thing drags on for years and years you know we're gonna keep uh backing this war and fueling this war because that's what the u.s is doing so even though ukraine can get didn't get their invitation uh you know the the u.s is not showing any sign of backing down all right, the next one here, a British defense minister says that Ukraine needs to show more gratitude. So there was a little drama during the second day of the NATO summit because uh, some countries were not happy with what Zelensky had to say. So British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace said Wednesday that Ukraine needs to show more gratitude for the support that it receives from the West when he was asked about Zelensky's criticism of NATO's communique. So Wallace said, quote, whether we like it or not, people want to see a bit of gratitude, end quote. So a day earlier, Zelensky said, you know, it was absurd, and he just really went after NATO for not giving him what he wanted. And Wallace said that Ukraine had a habit of being ungrateful and treating its NATO backers like an Amazon warehouse. And he was basically giving them advice saying, you know, if you want to get more money and weapons from countries you should be a little more polite it was essentially what he was saying but it was interesting he said quote i told them that last year when i drove 11 hours to be given a list that i'm not like amazon end quote so it sounds like he's talking about when he went to kiev and you know he got there and they just handed him over a list of things that they wanted and you know throughout the war zelensky and other ukrainian officials have not been shy to say even though they're getting tens of billions of dollars in military aid they haven't been afraid to say it's not enough they've said that when zelensky addressed congress and you know that's that's what he said that's one of the things we're getting artillery we need more 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 that's been their message you know this whole time and as soon as they get the things that they're asking for they move on to the next thing you know it was tanks they got the tanks now they're after the jets they got the jets now they're trying to get longer range missiles and they've had some success there we'll get more into that in another story um so jake sullivan biden's national security advisor he made similar comments in response to a question from a ukrainian activist who suggested the u.s wanted to see ukraine lose because kiev was not invited to join nato he said quote the united states of america has stepped up to provide an enormous amount of capacity i think the american people do deserve a degree of gratitude from the united states government for their willingness to step up and from the rest of the world as well, end quote. And Sullivan, Sullivan's comments were likely, you know, a message to Zelensky as well. The Washington Post reported that the U.S. delegation in Vilnius was furious over Zelensky's tweet, which is when he made that criticism of NATO. On the second day of the summit, Zelensky to toned down his rhetoric and he thanked the U.S. for support after holding a meeting with Biden. They talked you know, details aren't exactly clear what they talked about, uh, but more of that might become public uh, in the coming days. Uh, all right, the next one here, Germany's Rhine Metal to open tank factory in Ukraine. So Rhine Metal, which is German's leading arms maker, or uh, they will open a plant to manufacture tanks and other armored vehicles in Ukraine within the next 12 weeks as the West is looking to boost Ukraine's weapons industry. So Rheinmetall CEO told CNN that the company will also train Ukrainians how to use and maintain the tanks they manufacture at the plant. 
He said that Ukrainians need to learn how to help themselves and cannot rely on Europeans and Americans for maintenance. So the German company will operate the factory with a Ukrainian state-owned defense firm, and it's going to be located in Western Ukraine. So this is something, you know, we've been hearing a lot about is Western arms makers looking to build factories in Ukraine. Um, there's one that is helping build artillery, but it's they've kept it pretty quiet. It's not clear which Western country it is. But here we have this big German, you know, their biggest arms maker announcing that they're opening a tank. You're going to be building tanks in Ukraine now. And this is, you know, part of the plan when the G7 commitment, there's a lot of talk in NATO about, you know, getting them off the Soviet equipment to becoming a complete, you know, NATO armed uh, military. And this is part of it is building tanks and, uh, you know, other military equipment inside Ukraine. So it's a big escalation of, you know, Ukraine's relationship with NATO. And as, you know, Western arms companies have been talking about doing this, Russia, of course, is warning against it. And Dmitry Medvedev, who's the deputy chair of Russia's Security Council, who's known for his kind of, uh, you know, his rhetoric, you know, his saying he's definitely a little over the top. But he warned in June that Russia should respond to Western arms manufacturing in Ukraine with salvos of cruise missiles. So basically saying we should bomb these factories. Uh Rhine Metals CEO insisted that the plant would be able to be pr protected from a from any Russian attack. And this war in Ukraine has been a boon for Rhine Metal and other Western arms makers. The German company right now, they're working on producing more artillery rounds. Of course, that's the big thing. And they're going to increase annual production of artillery shells from 100,000 to 600,000. So it's a huge boost you know, again, lots of business to be had for these companies. All right, the next one here, U.S. and Russian spy chiefs discussed Ukraine. So this is interesting. And this is Sergei Narishkin, who's the head of Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR. He confirmed on Wednesday that he spoke with CIA Director William Burns after Yevgeny Prigozhin's short-lived rebellion. So U.S. media outlets reported at the end of June that Burns phoned Narishkin to assure that the U.S. was not involved in Prigozhin's mutiny. Uh, but the Russian spy chief said that they mostly discussed Ukraine. He said, quote, yes, indeed, a conversation took place at the end of last month. The way I see it, the June 24th events served as a pretext for the phone call by my American colleague, end quote. So he's saying it was the pretext for a call, but the conversation was actually about Ukraine. He said the bulk of the conversation was focusing on Ukraine and the events around it. And the way he put it was interesting. He said that they discussed what should be done about Ukraine. So William Burns, the CIA chief, he's a Russian speaker. He's a former U.S. ambassador to Russia. He's the one that very, you know, he's well known for sending a cable to Condoleezza Rice in 2008 when he was an ambassador to Russia, warning that, you know, Ukrainian entry into NATO is a huge red line. And, uh, you know, the NATO, besides that warning and, and the knowledge, you know, knowing that, again, this is a cable, this wasn't meant for public consumption. This is what, uh, you know, the administration was discussing. Despite that, in 2008 at the Bucharest summit, NATO, you know, declared that Ukraine and Georgia as well would eventually become members. 
So Narishkin said that they did not agree to set up an in-person meeting. Um, so they met in person last November in Turkey. And there's been talk. Russia's actually expressed interest in uh, having another meeting. But right now it, it has not been set up. Um, so it's interesting that they he's saying that they discussed Ukraine and not just the Prigozhin thing. Um, so we'll see. Hopefully, you know, there's more contact between U.S. and Russian officials. All right. The next one here, Biden administration debating sending attackums to Ukraine. So the Biden administration is quietly debating whether or not to provide Ukraine with the Army tactical missile systems, the attackums which have a range of up to 190 miles. And this is according to a report from the New York Times. It says they're quietly debating it. If you remember at the end of June, the Wall Street Journal reported that the administration was moving closer to providing Ukraine with attackums, which would mark a significant escalation of U.S. military aid. But so far, no decision has been made, and the argument against it in within the administration seems to be that they don't think the Pentagon has enough to spare for Ukraine not so much the concern of escalation. The U.S. has been depleting its military stockpiles for Ukraine, so they're saying that they don't have enough of these. Uh, before leaving the NATO summit in Lithuania, before getting on Air Force One, President Biden appeared to acknowledge that he was considering arming Ukraine with attackums. He was asked if he was thinking about sending the missiles. Biden said, quote, yes, but they already have the equivalent of attackums now. What we need most of all is artillery shells. They're in short supply, and we're working on that, end quote. So the attackums can be fired from the HIMARS rocket systems that the U.S. has been providing Ukraine. Most of the ammunition that Kiev has for these systems has a range of about 50 miles. The U.S. also sent the ground-launched small-diameter bombs for the HIMARS, which can hit targets up to 94 miles away. So either way, you know, they're more than, uh, they're doubling more than doubling Ukraine's strike range if they send these attackums. And what Biden is saying is that they already have the equivalent of attackums. I think he's referring to the cruise missiles that the British sent that can be fired from Ukrainian aircraft that have a range of about 155 miles. And France, during this NATO summit, announced that they're going to send their version, which is called, known as the Scalp missile, uh, but it's roughly the same thing. And the longer range arms risk a major escalation of the wars. They could be used to hit Russian territory. And, you know, something always worth pointing out here is that the Biden administration says that they don't want Ukraine using American weapons on Russian territory, but that doesn't apply to Crimea. And that's just as much of an escalation risk. You know, if Ukraine really starts hitting the peninsula with American or other NATO weapons, you know, it could risk a pretty big retaliation from Russia. All right, the next one here, China hits back against the NATO's eastward mar march. So this article is from the South China Morning Post again about the situation in uh, the situation with China and NATO. So NATO drew four Indo-Pacific countries tighter into its orbit on Wednesday as China hit back against the Security Alliance's eastward march. So leaders from Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and South Korea met with NATO's 31 members in Vilnius. So they were there, and China was on the agenda. So I went over yesterday, the communique really targeted China, and Stoltenberg, you know, in, just in his press conferences, really went after China as well. So ahead of the talks, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida said that in the current severe international security environment, the security of Europe and the Indo-Pacific are inseparable. 
So he says that they are, you know, trying to increase cooperation with uh, NATO. A partnership agreement signed by Kashida and NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg vowed to uphold freedom, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. So they signed this new partnership agreement. Um, and they're still hoping to get this NATO liaison office that France has so far blocked. But these Japanese officials are speaking to the South China Morning Post are saying that they hope, you know, it, they get it down the line. And Stoltenberg was saying that it's it's going to happen or that, you know, the idea is shelved, but they're, they're going to still try to do it is basically what Stoltenberg was saying about it. But of course, you know, China hit out at all this and is telling NATO, stay out of the Asia Pacific. And the next one here, Biden's Joint Chiefs pick wants more bases in Asia to prep for war with China. So President Biden's nominee to replace General Mark Milley as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said Tuesday that he would pursue establishing more bases in the Indo-Pacific region and increase support for Taiwan to prepare for a future war with China. So General Charles Q. Brown told a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing that the Pentagon must, quote, implement the national defense strategy and prepare a joint force that can win the next war if called upon, end quote. So the Pentagon's 2022 national defense strategy names China as the most comprehensive and serious challenge to U.S. national security strategy, and Russia is named as the second priority, even as the U.S. was funding this proxy war against Russia, Pentagon's still saying China's number one. Brown said that the U.S. needs to establish more outposts in the Indo-Pacific because it takes time to move resources around the massive region. He said, quote, you cannot wait till the crisis occurs to be able to deploy capability. You have to pre-position capability and have that in place. You have to work with allies and partners to have access to locations, end quote. So we know the U.S. just signed a deal with the Philippines. They're getting five new military bases there or four new military bases there. Um, and the Papua New Guinea, they're looking to get bases there. Elsewhere in the Pacific Islands, Australia, they're looking to get this logistics hubs in, hub in India where they can repair and maintain naval ships. Um, and I bet they're trying to get Indonesia to agree to a base still, even though Indonesia has been pretty clear that they don't want that. But I bet behind the scenes, they're still pushing for that. Um, so the Senate hearing, they also discussed a new authority that allows the U.S. military to send weapons to Taiwan straight from Pentagon stockpiles. That's the Presidential Drawdown Authority, which is the primary way the U.S. has been arming Ukraine. The 2023 National Defense Strategy included $1 billion in this authority for Taiwan. Uh, but as far as I know, it has not been used. Uh, there was a report that said the U.S. sent some Stinger missiles using this authority. But then the Biden administration later said, no, that was uh, old. Uh, that was from for an arms sale from a few years ago that they were fulfilling. I although, you know, as I am reading this now, I wouldn't be surprised if they try to send this quietly, because every time they use the presidential drawdown authority for Ukraine, you know, they put out a press release about it. But for Taiwan, maybe, you know, I think I got to try to look into it more. There might be a chance that they've sent some things without announcing it just because the nature of the relationship with Taiwan and not, you know, having formal relations. So just a little bit on who he is, Charles Brown. 
He's a fighter pilot who currently serves as the chief of staff of the Air Force, and he stresses the importance of air power in a future fight with China. He headed U.S. Pacific Forces from 2018 to 2020, and it's said that he's been nominated for his experience in Asia. Brown also has experience in the Middle East. He was the deputy commander of U.S. Central Command from 2016 to 2018, and that's when the U.S. was engaged in a very brutal air campaign against ISIS. And I link there to the civilian casualty files that the New York Times released in at the end of 2021 that did not get much attention, got very little attention about the massive amount of civilian casualties that the Pentagon hid in airstrikes against ISIS in Iraq and Syria um, from 2014 to 2018. And the bulk of it is in, you know, 2016, 2017 was when they were really bombing uh, ISIS and, and cities. You know, they destroyed Raqqa, which is a city in Syria in 2017. Um, all right. So the next one here, this is an article from NPR of all places, uh, in Laos, U.S. cluster bombs still kill civilians. So this is just basically about the situation in Laos today from a guy named Louis M. Simons. He's a foreign correspondent who's had its experience in Laos, including during the war. Uh, he said he, you know, he has some anecdotes here about talking with CIA-paid mercenaries and Air Force pilots, you know, while the U.S. was bombing Laos. And there's some pretty, you know, jarring statistics here. Um, just the amount of these bomblets that they call them, that the cluster bomb spread that that have been in Laos. And uh, the U.S. aircraft dumped two, th- 2 million tons of ordnance on Laos. So Laos is considered the most heavily bombed country in the history of the world, more than Japan, Germany, and Britain during World War II, which is really just incredible. And, um, sorry, I'm trying to skim this and find the numbers with the, uh, the, uh, cluster bombs, but I'm kind of failing. But one thing I know that he said, yeah, less than 1% of the dormant bombs have been cleared since the war ended in Laos. About 20,000 civilians have been killed in the same period. Even as the numbers gradually decline, thousands continue to be killed, crippled, and disfigured. Half the victims are children. So the numbers... And they're saying that this is going to take at least another hundred years to clean all this up in Laos. I mean, the fact that there's this case study in, in not just Laos, but Cambodia, Vietnam, and other countries they've been used in, in Iraq as well. There's been issues with them. It's just, and they're still sending them, you know, going to dump hundreds of thousands of these shells into Ukraine, at least hundreds of thousands, possibly millions. We don't know. Um, but go check that out. It's a good article. Uh, the next one here is from Middle East Eye. Republicans accuse Biden of anti, anti-Semitic anti-Israel policies. So 14 U.S. senators said that they would work to delay confirmation of State Department officials unless the Biden administration reverses its anti-Semitic boycott of Israel. So this is several Republican senators, including some of the you know heavy hitters, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, James Reich, Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz. Um, they wrote a letter addressed to Biden and Blinken, and they're really unhappy that Biden, last month, he suspended the transfer of funds for research, science, or technology projects taking place in the occupied West Bank. 
Uh, that was a thing that Trump authorized in late 2022 was allowing U.S. taxpayer funding to be used for projects in Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank for the first time since 1967. So Biden reversed that. And they're very mad and they're calling him anti-Semitic for it. Uh, it's, you know, the original cancel culture here is, um, uh, you know, politicians that don't think you support Israel enough. Um, but and they're also mad at Biden for not meeting with Netanyahu, I believe. Um, you know, you can never do enough for Israel for people, people like this. All right, that's it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Jeff Roberts, peace in Ukraine, faltering counteroffensive and a failed coup. One from Ramsey Baroud, Netanyahu, no Palestinian state and the PA works for us. One from Caitlin Johnstone at her site. Biden keeps lying about the U.S. not trying to surround China. Biden said that during one of his recent interviews that, no, we're not trying to surround China, even though as they are clearly you know, doing that. One from Kelly Vlahos at Responsible Statecraft, Rep. Warren Davidson. He's a Republican in the House. No mission, no aid for Ukraine. Uh, he wants to try to put some restrictions on Ukraine aid. Um so this is something I believe he's trying to tack on to the NDAA. Uh, and that's another thing. I haven't been following that closely enough because there's been all this stuff going on with the uh, Vilnius summit, but the NDAA in, in the house is going to be voted on soon. And they have all these amendments that they're working on. There's some good ones, you know, like the cluster blocking the cluster bombs. And this amendment would require a clear definition and assessment of the administration's war strategy. Um, and if they can't get that, then they say no aid for Ukraine. So we'll see uh, if any of the good amendments make it. Uh, you know, hopefully that some of them do at least. And then the spotlight is from Chris Hedges. Journalists abandoned Julian Assange and slit their own throats. Um, but that's it for me for today. Go check out uh, antiwar.com slash donate. If you want to help us out, like and subscribe on YouTube. Tell your friends about the show. Leave comments. Leave reviews if you listen to the podcast. Uh, but I'll be back tomorrow with some more news for you. Thanks for listening.